for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, um, authors, composers, choreographers on occasion, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, and we talk with them. And we're going to do uh, some, some big talking today at the midpoint of the show uh, to kick off National Diabetes Month. We're going to have filmmakers Lisa Hepner and Guy Mossman with us to talk about their new documentary, The Human Trial. Uh, and it focuses on a six or seven year journey uh, with the company of Viasite, uh, which was recently just bought out by another uh, research company uh, this year in 2022. And the name of the new company escapes me. But this focuses on Viasite and their embryonic stem cell implants with the hope that it will develop bioartificial uh, pancreas to create insulin and cure type 1 diabetes. Uh, diabetes is a big, big, big... It's, it's often called the hidden disease because most people don't realize when somebody is diabetic unless they go into shock, go fall into a coma, or a lot of the extenuating illnesses that can result, such as kidney failure, blindness... Uh, non-healing uh, sores, injuries. Um, it's my mother uh, was diabetic. She went from a type two, became a type one. She was notorious. She did not take care of herself the way you're supposed to, and with repeated diabetic coma, she eventually did uh, go into kidney failure. Was on dialysis for a number of years before she finally passed away, uh, but not from her diabetes. I have a brother who is diabetic. My grandfather at age 90 became diabetic. And then I have several friends who are type 1, uh, insulin dependent, have been their whole lives, uh, that live and die by the pumps that are attached to them. So this is an issue that is, it is important to me. So I was very curious to see the film, The Human Trial, and we're going to talk more with Lisa and Guy about their journey over six or seven years uh, to put this documentary together and show us what's happening. Uh, we're going to, and in the documentary, there are the first two clinical trial patients, uh, patient one and patient two, of this procedure when it began, as soon as the FDA had greenlit it years ago. So... We're going to talk with them at the midpoint, but before then, and I'm going to get to this in a second, uh, my friend, I am so, so thrilled and so proud to get to bring you this, the interview we're going to kick the show off with uh, and the film I'm going to talk about first. Next Exit, written and directed by my friend Molly Elfman. I couldn't be any prouder of anyone than I am of Molly. Um, we've known each other for a solid 17 years, if not pushing closer to 20. Uh, she started as, you know, as a critic, as a journalist. And 
moved into producing and writing and directing some shorts and doing some acting. She has, over the years, produced numerous uh, films, small films, short films, put together fun-sized horror, volumes one and volume two, uh, anthologies of horror films, and I'm very, very thrilled that a short film that I produced, was one of the producers on a few years ago, uh, Bitter, directed by Ned Airbar, uh, that made it into Fun Size Horror Volume 1. So Molly and I are forever going to be tied uh, in one form or another. But she has now made the leap into writing and directing her first feature film. And it's, it's a goodie. It is a goodie. Next Exit. And it's a film that, for those of us who know Molly, um, we're going to recognize this film, so many elements of it, as being her. You know, they always say, write about what you know, write about what interests you. Um, this film is Molly Elfman. Um, it's the story of a research scientist who makes national news when she proves that she can track people into the afterlife. And don't we all wonder about the afterlife at some point in our lives? You know, what happens when we check out? When the brainwaves stop, when the heart stops beating? Or when the pacemaker is taken out to make sure that your heart still isn't beating uh, when you get buried? But two strangers are drawn to this program that this research scientist has. Uh, Rose, she just wants to be gone. She doesn't want to be here anymore. But she also has some, a hidden desire that, that's stemming from that. And then there's Teddy. And he sees this as an answer. He's viewing this as something exciting and wonderful. Rose is viewing it as something that will just put her out of her misery here on Earth just because she's miserable. Um, each has secrets, and they end up joining, going on a road trip to across country from New York all the way to San Francisco. And it's quite interesting because Rose and Teddy are like oil and water. They do not go together at all. They fight. They argue. Um, Katie Parker stars as Rose. Katie Parker... This is a great acting feat because Katie is not a nasty person like Rose. So she really, this is good acting. And Raul Coley, who most of you may know from Bla Haunting a Bly Manor, he, this is a big, big, big step up for him. As he essentially is, co this boils down to essentially Katie and Raul. Uh, and he steals the show. He steals the show. He is incredible. Needless to say, on a road trip, that gives you great opportunity to have fun. We see the, the quarreling, the squabbling. We see Teddy slowly, quietly falling in love with Rose. Um, we have supernatural elements, of course, when we're dealing with the afterlife that come into play here. Um just so well done. 
This is a solid first feature from Molly. Um, the cinematography, Azuli Anderson cinematography, it's not fancy. But it captures the beauty of middle America on a cross-country road trip. And yes, they really did go on a road trip. Of course, they didn't start in New York. I think they started, and Molly talks about this in our interview. They started somewhere around Kansas City, crossing, uh, going through the southwest, getting some beautiful, beautiful night skies, gorgeous sunsets. And these are one-shot deals. You know, you can't go back and reshoot them. You're not going to get the same thing again. And this is also the importance of having Brett Bachman as an editor. And I got to tell you, people, you know his work. Pig with Nicolas Cage, Werewolves Within. Brett Bachman is an amazing editor. He can do drama. He can do comedy. Um, and a luxury that not many filmmakers have, Brett was on the road trip because this film was shot during COVID. And it was a limited cast and crew. People were doing double duty. Um, but by having Brett by her side, he was editing as they went. So while they were still at a location, if something was missing, the opportunity was still there to capture, to get some more coverage or, or capture something that may have been missing. Um, this is a wonderful collaborative, collaborative effort uh, on all parts with Brett, with Azuli, Molly, with actors, and of course, a beautiful score from Ariel Marks. Uh, and also some great advice and some uh, musical tidbits from Danny Elfman. So without any further ado, I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let you listen to my exclusive interview with feature film director Molly Elfman. Hello? Hi, Debbie. It's me, Molly. Hi. Hi, you. How are you? I am thrilled to be talking to you, woman. It's been too, too, too long. I know. It's been a really, really, really long time. Oh, it's so nice to hear your voice. But you've been really, 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 really busy producing. Uh, and, hey, look, I still have the thrill of having a short that I produced be part of Fun Size Horror. So. I love Fun Size Horror. You know, there is... I mean, talk about such a wild ride and something that was unexpected and just done with all the love in the world. Um, and just truly trying to do what I feel like a lot of people say, which is help people make their first short film so that they can start yeah. their careers. Like, yeah. a lot of times it is just that. It is just that little piece that enables something so much bigger. So, and, yay! And look what that little piece has now led you to. Right? You finally did it. You wrote and directed your first feature. It's wild. It's really wild. It's been such a, it's been such a weird experience, and yet oddly a comfortable experience. I don't know. It's it's been one with yeah. 
all over the place. But yeah, this is uh, it's really weird to finally be at today too. I will say. I'm but, so oh proud God, of you. I am. I am so proud of you. So proud of you that you got to, you. that you have done this. That you. You know, you've made this journey, and you've done a good job, woman. <laughs> good. You like it. I do like it. It's a solid first feature. I can't. Be- I'll, I'll break it down for you. Rose is so abrasive and so obnoxious. I can't believe Katie actually transformed herself into Rose. But then you get Raul, who is, my God, I had never seen him until Bly Manor. But to see him here where he really, this comes down to Katie and Raul for 90% of the film. As Teddy, he lights up the screen. He is funny. His comedic timing is flawless. And his emotion is palpable. And you can see Teddy falling in love with Rose. Yeah. And that abrasiveness, that oil and water abrasiveness, is what you need with this film. And it works so damn well. Thank you. Yeah, no, honestly, I always knew it was going to live or die on these two performances. And then being able to carry it through and working with the two of them, I immediately saw it. And I was like, oh, thank God this is going to work. First day on set, I was like, we got this. Because uh, it's a lot. It's a lot for them to both handle. It's a lot for them to take on. Yeah. We were literally driving across the country. There was no internet. Everybody was uncomfortable. And, and they both just went for it 100%. And I'm just so grateful to them for that. Okay, well, now, wait a minute here. Number one, not only do you write and direct your first feature, you turn it into a road picture that's really on the road, but you pick states where there's no internet connection? <laughs> we weren't aware of that. It was supposed to have internet connection. They just, by the time that a whole production, the 20 of us show up all needing to be on Zoom, it just crashed. It was like, no, we don't do that. Uh, out in Tucson, Terry... Uh, there's not a lot of people in one spot that all need to use a lot of internet in order to make things happen. Oh, my God. Ah. Next time, scout this out ahead of time. Uh, we were trying. We did our best. But it was COVID, so literally we showed up at locations the same day that we shot. Wow. Uh, we had done a tech scout on Zoom, which you can't really do. No. Uh, but, you know, we got through it, so we made it happen. And I, I'm actually very grateful for it because instead of getting in my head and being so worried about having to do things the right way and and, and accomplish the, my goals and all the rest of it, I just had to go with the flow. I had to listen to my actors, stay in tune with them, follow the camera, follow the light of the day because, you know, the sun was lighting our set all the time. So it was just a matter of where do you put things, where do you be smart, and reimagining on the fly. And I, I think if I would have made this in the way that I, you know, the more structured, more traditional way, I think it would have been good, but I don't think it would have had that sense of kind of capturing a road trip, which is what I really wanted. Well, and you definitely succeed with that. And I'm glad that your mantra was follow the light, because I got to tell you, Azuli turns in some really beautiful, especially your night sequences, got Diva in there, just really beautiful beautiful work and I like how you the two of you decided to go widescreen 
for a good portion of this. So that when you do come in for your mid-twos, you really can feel the emotion in those moments. And you also get that metaphoric specter of the big wide world and the universe and what's out there. So that the two of you really did a beautiful job with that. Thank you. That means so much, especially coming from you, who I know understands this so well. (laughs) Um, This is a, yeah, it was a... I mean, honestly, what I wanted to do was capture the beauty of the world. And Azuli, who hasn't, this is actually her first feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's South African. And I, she's back in South Africa making mainly documentaries. Uh, and photo- she does photography work. So it was a, a pretty big deal. I, I saw her photography and I saw the work that she had done. And it was exactly what I wanted in Next Exit. So it was a challenge because she hadn't really, she had never worked with a full film crew before or done that type of, uh, I guess, department head work as much. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, uh, I think that she really rose to the occasion, and what we were able to get was a very natural feel, and a feel that almost at times does feel like a documentary, and was one that leaned into the beauty of the world, because I did want it to feel so claustrophobic at the start, and so tight, which New York, even when you're looking out the windows, there's so much going on, you're kind of locked into your place, and then as you go as you're heading west to truly feel those skies. I just went back to New Mexico to, we did a Southwest tour for the film and just driving through from New Mexico to Arizona and looking at those wide open skies, there is something that it is hard to not feel a spirituality, but also a, how insignificant we all are in terms of this big, big world and yet how important everybody's perspective of it matters. And I think that was kind of the feel that I always wanted the film to have. Well, you definitely capture that naturalism and that perspective of it. And that's one of the things, and I I even made notes about this, is that your cinematography, it's nothing special, meaning there's nothing fancy. You're not doing dutching. You're not doing, you know, glorified surveillance, fly on the wall in the ceiling kind of shots. It's just letting us absorb the universe and the world around us which we have two people that want to escape it. Yeah. I always said that I wanted the camera to feel like, especially when we were taking in the characters in the rooms and stuff, to feel like a ghost that was curious about what they would do next. Uh, and so I was always just trying to find a curious view of somebody who would just be checking them out. And I didn't want them to be haunted or stalker POV. Right. I just wanted to be curious about these two's journey and just following them along. So we used to always say that the camera was the ghost that was on this journey. Um, and so that was kind of kind of the vibe that we were hopefully trying to get. But I, I, yeah, I'm pretty proud of the work that we did in terms of the look of it. And then, you know, going into the void at the end was where I got to have a little bit more of my specific shot-listed storyboard mm-hmm. and fun, which I also really enjoy. And I got to say that third act and that final sequence in there was really amazing. That is a standout sequence in the film, and it real and of course you need tissues and everything else there, and your your heart is breaking for Teddy. The emotion that you bring out here, you poured yourself into this script, and I see that, I know that. Yeah, no, like one hundred percent. It was uh, 
I mean, that's the thing is that when people ask me a lot of questions, it's sometimes hard to answer because I'm like, this script is me. It's like, why did you come up with this? I'm like, I don't know. Why am I the way that I am? This is turning into a therapy session. Um, but I truly feel like when I watch this film, it is me. And there are, look, it's also me for a, a certain budget and a certain restraint of number of days and all the rest of it. But I look at it and I'm just so proud of that, that we, of what we were able to accomplish together. Well, so, um, so much of your own journey, your personal life, your yeah. own journey is in here. It's on the screen. I see it. Because I know what a lot of your journey has been. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been a weird but wild ride to be open to being so, you know, and there are certain things that are directly my personal life. And then right. there's, of course, as, as all filmmakers like to do, uh, an interpretation of what it feels like to go through something, which has been, I think, a little bit more of this type of style, but still that raw honesty of what it is to actually go through something like that. And I think that you kind of have to be earnest in that nature in order to find those moments and to talk about that truth. But I also wanted to, because, you know, me being me, I like to have fun at the same time. So I think it was also <laughs> very imperative for me to find those moments of joy and find that that happiness and to find that light within it. And all of the light and, and joy and happiness you channeled into Teddy in this film. Yes. You really did. I, I love the way that you didn't blur those lines. You had to see Rose try and be like a nice person a little bit, but then yeah. she reverts back to being snarky and mean. So, yeah. and well, that's her go-to. Unless that, she yeah. changes herself, she's going to keep going back and doing the same things that she's always done. And that's a life lesson for everybody that's built in there. Exactly. If, unless you actually do... Look, there's people that can help you open up. There's experiences. There's all of all of that type of stuff that is there. But until you actually make a change, until you actually look at yourself and deal with your shit, you're going to keep making the same mistakes. You're going to keep going through these cycles. And so I think that's the important part for me with Rose, when she actually gets to the end, is going back to some of the things that she originally haunted her at the start of the film and then ultimately needing to make a choice. Mm -hmm. I have to compliment you. How the heck did you nail Brett Bachman for your editor? Brett Bachman! I know! He's fabulous! He's, he's the best. Brett Bachman is my editor through and through. He will be on everything, and I have already told him. He just uh, did another project, and I was like, I, if that's fine. You can do another project, but when I need you, you come back. And if you don't, I will lock you in the basement. And <laughs> I was joking with the other director, and he started laughing, and Brett's like, no, she will. And I was like, yes, she will. <laughs> yes, she will. Um, I worked for Brett. I actually met Brett over 10 years ago. Uh, he was, uh, he he cut Daniel Noah's Max Rose. Did mm -hmm. you remember that? Yeah. That was a yeah, long uh, time ago. That was a long time ago. And I got pulled in for notes on that. Mm -hmm. And he remembered, he was like, she gave really good notes. And then we uh, we both worked on the film Bitch. And then we ended up doing uh, two shorts together. So he did Locker Room Z uh, for me. And he, we did a couple of other. Uh, we did He did the party just beginning with Karen. Uh-huh. So we just had a long relationship and a shorthand. And I, uh, I'm sure you got to enjoy. Did you actually see, catch his cameo in the film as well? Do you know what Brett Bachman looks like? He no, I don't. I don't know what Brett looks like. 
Brett Bachman, so I got to bring 17 people on the road, and one of the people that I brought was my editor, because that's how important I think editing is. And yeah. I wanted to be able to edit as we go, so that we, because we were never going to be in these places again. This guy was never going to look the same way again. Right. And basically have him there to be able to be like, you have to get the da-da-da-da in order for this scene to cut. So, uh, yeah, he was on the road. But that being said, because of COVID, we couldn't bring in outside actors. So when they check into the Ohio motel, uh-huh. uh, the guy at the beginning, that is Brett Bachman. He's the uh-huh. one checking them in. He's the <laughs> one where uh, Teddy does the whole, uh, we're trying to conceive, and he looks really confused. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> Brett. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, the pacing that he's that he develops is really good. You have some beautiful montages in there that he put together. Really beautiful montages. And having him there with you, I think, was more advantageous for you as a second set of story eyes than having a DP. You know, so often the DP is the one, but I think in this case, because of the nature of this film, and because it was, a, you know, it's a one-trick pony, one-shot deal, you can't go back for reshoots. So exactly. I, so I think it was brilliant that you had Brett with you. Yeah, no, he he was my lifesaver, and he also understands the story. And I think he also it, it was a tough tone to get. And mm-hmm. I knew a lot of people who weren't willing to go on that journey of something that was earnest but also very emotional, and that it was an emotionally driven story first and foremost. I think there was a, a lot of editors that could have fought me on plot or trying to 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 find the scenes in a less uh, emotional way. Yeah. And Brett was so down for that. You know, I never talked to him about what to cut where. I talked to him about the feelings of every single scene, the intentions of every single scene, and he was so ready to work from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And I will say, going through all of Post, working with Ariel Marks, my composer, and Brian Parker, uh, my sound designer, it was the same thing through and through. So it was... People who wanted to work from an emotional place first and foremost and then accomplish the needs of the film kind of almost, well, that is what accomplished the needs of the film. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Ariel because I like the score. It's appropriate and it's unobtrusive. Yeah. You know better than most about the importance of score, but you also know how sometimes score can just overtake a film. And... Ariel's score yeah. does not do that here. I, I mean, I, that was what was so imperative for me, honestly, is in my experience with working with composers, simple is always the hardest thing to ask them to do. Uh, and understated and also mixed genre and mixed tone, mm-hmm. they have such a, they can struggle with that. And Ariel, I always say it looks like she was ice skating along the Grand Canyon with this, oh. the tone on this film. It's like, go a little bit too far, you're in melodrama. Go a little bit too far the other way, you're in sci-fi territory. Go too far the other way, you're pure ghost story. And she just went right down the middle. And I think she has a way of kind of creeping her score in and having it be something that can be felt. There are moments where she goes big and we get to play and bring up those strings and those are those emotional beats. But really, it is a score that is truly felt and not necessarily heard in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly what I wanted. And that's what you needed when you're playing with the characters of Rose and Teddy. You need something that is felt. Two things, Molly. Number one, I know on the credits... Daddy has a credit for some additional material. Yes. What did he, he what did he bring? Can you, can you 
quantify what he brought besides you? <laughs> Into this world, yeah. Um, it was really uh, only a couple pieces of music. One of them was Tender Moments, um, which is the moment where Rose tucks Teddy into bed. Okay. And then sees the ghost of the TV. You know, he wrote, uh, basically, I showed him the assembly uh, and got his notes very early to somebody that I definitely trust. Uh, and wanted to see an early cut of the film. And he just wrote me these couple of pieces that really helped us set the tone from the jump. And he really gave me these pieces of advice of don't go too big. This isn't, it, you're going to work against yourself. Which, of course, I agreed with. But he wrote that, and he wrote a couple other little themes that Ariel really reinterpreted and made her own. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you can hear them. Yeah, like I said, uh, you can definitely hear them in the tender moment, and you can hear it kind of growing into the end, and you can hear it in a couple moments, mainly with Teddy's emotional beat. The other thing that's really exciting is that Danny Parker, our model child, wrote a couple of songs for the film, including the song with Teddy, uh, the, I'm not going to give that away, Teddy in the Bar. Okay. Day, his big emotional moment in the bar. Uh, I wanted it to sound like diegetic music, but play like four, and Danny Parker actually wrote that song. Oh, wow. Perfect. Yeah, it's a really great musical blend. And I would be remiss if I did not thank you for the equal opportunity vomiting that you gave everyone in the film. Everybody's got to puke. Everybody, everybody had to puke. Everybody's got to let it all out. That's <laughs> our journey. <laughs> and I first time first time I laughed, then the second time Somebody else, and I just, I cracked up laughing. I know this is not a film to really crack up laughing, but those two scenes oh. were just fabulous. I disagree. I say I, it's important to laugh. I love it when people laugh during this. <laughs> well, there's a lot here to laugh at. And so, as I said, so much of it comes from Roll's performance because he is just, his comedy chops are amazing. Yeah. I love you. I am so proud of you. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's so good to talk to you, and it's so good to hear from you. And, uh, yeah, let's catch up more later when I'm not on a rotating schedule. Enjoy, enjoy. Congratulations, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It means so much to me. Thanks, Debbie. Bye. Bye. And that was Molly Elfman talking about Next Exit. It is in theaters, people. Theaters. Uh, and I do believe on other platforms as well, but definitely in theaters, which makes it even more exciting that Molly's first feature film is in theaters around the country. Check it out. Next exit. It is one exit you don't want to miss. Trust me on that one. Well, we're going to shift gears right now. And um, Pam, can you bring... Since I still can't merge lines together, I got to have Pam do it for me. Ah, okay. uh, and now we're going to shift gears and talk about diabetes uh, with Lisa Hepner and Guy Mossman. Hi. Hi. Welcome, welcome. Um, what a film to Thank kick you. off National Diabetes Month with. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having us, and we definitely agree with you that this film has a lot of messaging and value uh, during this month, which more people should know about. 
I, I, so many people don't, and a lot of people that do, and I know this based on my own experience with a mother who was diabetic, a brother who's diabetic. Uh, my grandfather became a diabetic at 90, and I have dear friends that are insulin pump dependent uh, type 1 diabetics. Um, and I've seen the gamut uh, over the course of my 64 years uh, with what has happened in terms of diabetic comas, going into shock, temporary blindness, blindness. Um, and people don't think about all of these things. They're not aware of them because it's not something that you can see on somebody. It's not like cancer and you see somebody getting debilitated or somebody taking mass amounts of steroids and blowing up like balloons or a broken leg or surgeries. Um, so we do need more films like this. Sometimes I want to yell out, Debbie. Is it Debbie Lynn or Debbie? Just Debbie is fine. Debbie. Debbie. <laughs> Sometimes I want to yell out like Larry Kramer did during the AIDS crisis. It's an effing plague. I'm not going to swear on radio, but um, it's an effing plague. And it is not taken seriously. And there are several reasons for this. One is, as you point out, it's invisible. Yep. We don't wear it on our faces or our bodies. I mean, if you see an insulin pump, someone wearing it, that's kind of unusual. And as a result, I don't think people take it seriously because they don't see any of the trappings of this um, serious disease. I also think, you know, we see big pharma advertising so many treatments that if you just, you know, take such and such, you can live a great life. Go hot air ballooning, go climb a mountain. And so, you know, we patients also absorb that, that, that we need to be we need to be super patients. We need, we need to get it right because, for goodness sakes, we have the tools. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the messaging is kind of muddled out there. Well, I, And, uh, yeah. No, I was going to say, along that line, I think the, very, the first commercial that I have seen uh, about type 1 diabetes, Anthony Anderson is doing a commercial right now and actually talking about... It's not one of these upbeat, you know, let's go hot air balloon. Take this medication and you're going to be fine and you can do everything. No, in this commercial, and it's set against a royal blue, midnight blue background. Um, so it's not all bright and sunny. It catches your attention. But he talks about blindness and, you know, wounds that don't heal and, and things along those lines. I think it's one of the first commercials about diabetes, and treatments and medications that I have seen where anything is said about the bad things that can happen. I am so glad to hear that, that Anthony Anderson is doing that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to punt this to Guy because I know he has a lot of thoughts on it as well. But um, I, think, I think there's just such a stigma to struggle you know, mm -hmm. I do. I think we live in this country that it's about, you know, just getting ahead. And, and, you know, you too can rise above your circumstances. But that's not always the case. That's right. And to be sick in this country is, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want me to speak to this? Guy, what? Yes, guy. Yeah. We want you yeah. to speak to this guy. Yes, we do. <laughs> well, being, you know, being a um, partner and 
working partner and husband um, to a type one. I mean, I knew very little about it um, coming into the relationship about type one diabetes. Um, I think that um, I think that type two and type one are obviously conflated, and um, this this is happening on such a level that you know it's it's to the extent that you know type one diabetics are getting blamed. I think there's a lot of stigma. We've seen it with the film. We've seen it in terms of what sorts of audiences we can um, penetrate or mm-hmm. we can, what markets we can get into. I think that there's sort of a threshold that we have to get over with people who don't know anything about type one. That's certainly affected. But I think that, that affects people that, that, you know, diabetics are facing that every day and type one diabetics are facing that every day. So mm-hmm. hopefully our film can, can bring light mm-hmm. to that. Well, I, I, I just want to add something. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Lisa. I, I just want to add something that um, type 1 and type 2 diabetes may have different sources, mm-hmm. but the long-term complications are the same. Same. So I honestly don't blame anybody who gets this disease. It's a crappy disease, no matter how you slice or dice it. And if you get it because it's a so-called lifestyle disease, because you can't you know, afford the best and healthiest food, I certainly don't blame anybody. People are losing limbs and going blind, mm-hmm. and um, the outcomes really are the same. Yeah, can, no. can be the same. Absolutely. And I mean, I've seen it uh, with my own mother. Um, she ended up uh, with kidney failure and on dialysis uh, for a number of years before she passed. She would get injured, and some of her toes that she had injured, they ended up like, kind of disintegrating almost because they didn't heal from the diabetes. Um, and countless diabetic comas because she didn't take care of herself. You know, she, there was no reason not to, but she was one of those people that wanted to ignore it. And she wouldn't eat, but she'd take her insulin. Or she'd eat and then not take her insulin. Um, so it requires, you know, there is responsibility. You can't ignore this. Um, as so many of us, we ignore disease and this is one that's so easy to push off until you suddenly wake up in an emergency room and your blood sugar is 13. Um, wow. So, uh, you know, when I, when I say this is very important to me, I live, I watched this and lived it. So, you know, that's why this documentary and what you are showing us now is so important because I love this journey that you take us on. And this is a long journey because you actually become semi-embedded in a clinical trial as an observer. I don't know if it's semi-embedded. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we were hardcore embedded. Uh, yeah, hard, on different levels with the researchers, with two clinical trial patients, patient one, patient two, uh, and then even in terms of the cost and fundraising. I say somewhat embedded because of the fact this went on for so many years. And you obviously weren't with them 24-7. Uh, so I need to get into that with you about how, from a filmmaking standpoint, you approach this. And, you know, first of all, how you even got Viasite 
to agree to let you come in and speak with you. Because so often there's so much proprietary stuff happening that it's like, no, no cameras. We're not talking to anybody yet. Um, maybe it's because you got in at the right time when the FDA just greenlit a clinical trial. Talk to me about how, how the two of you got involved with this and got the idea for this film and working with Viasite. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to speak to the how did we get access question because um, it took us a year to convince the CEO <laughs> of Viasite that uh-huh. he should let cameras in and capture the warts and all. And it literally took us a year. And I remember the VP over there saying, you know, Paul keeps asking me, is that that pesky doc filmmaker again? Are they calling me again? And finally, I think what broke the um, what broke him down, if you will, was the fact that so many people in, um, you know, in the labs toil for years and they never get recognition for everything that they've been doing. Right. You know, science is incremental. Progress is incremental in science. And so um, it was really important, and he understood this, for to honor the work that his team was doing. And here was an opportunity for cameras to come in and sort of capture a legacy, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, he also, we also signed an agreement where the team could look at our science, uh, you know, representation and make comments on that to make sure that we okay. didn't reveal anything proprietary. But Guy, you had something to add to that too, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that um, as storytellers, documentary storytellers, um, in particular, we really wanted to tell a story that um, followed the trial in real time. We both um, have a love for um, what we call cinema verite storytelling, mm-hmm. and I think we saw an opportunity here to do that with, you know, as long as we could cast it and find, you know, great characters that could that could really, really pull the viewer in and, and um, compel audiences. Um, and, you know, you need characters that are sympathetic, um, you need the access, you need them to be likable, um, but in some cases, you know, not not so much. But in our case, you know, in this case of this film, they were I think they were all very um, sort of magnetic in their own way, and we got lucky. Um, there's a lot of luck. I think um, most verite films really are, um, yes, showing up on time, but but a lot of luck. Um, and um, you know, our, we Greg and Marn were the first two characters. Uh, in the trial, the first two of that in the University of Minnesota trial, and so we had to cast. We had a very limited pool to cast from. They were the we had to shoot with them, um, and they were they turned out as you saw in the film to be um, great characters. Um, so, so yeah, so that brought us into their world. We just wanted to be with them, and um, and with time, they wanted to be with us. Um, and uh, you know, we tried different things to try and make, you know, make the invisible visible, so to speak. Um, we tried different techniques to, um, you know, to try and we gave them cameras. We asked them to film with their iPhones. We, and you saw that, Marin mm-hmm. did that. Um, you saw it in the film. Um, and, you know, in some, some occasions I, I, I spent the night um, and, uh, you know, tried just to be present if there were events, you know, 
um, or hypos or any any sort of like event that we could try to capture to to bring um, diabetes to life on the screen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, um, I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that, Lisa. I would just say that you know the impetus to the story and why we stuck it out for ten years. Um, was because, you know, Guy saw firsthand how I struggled with it. And, you know, he was alluding to the fact that he knew nothing about it when he met me. And that was very true. And it was only when he lived with me and saw me, you know, wake up in the morning drenched in sweat, discombobulated from a low blood sugar, that he said, holy, holy moly, like, what is going on with you, Lisa? What is this disease? I had no idea. And Guy, being the filmmaker that he is, looked at me and said, we need to make a film. To which I said, absolutely not. (laughs) I want to live my life. I want to be a producer in New York. I don't want to, you know, shine a light on this disease. It's it's not my M.O. But um, Guy convinced me of the value. And then when we were looking for a story to follow, we heard about Viacite and we heard about this clinical trial using stem cells to become islet cells or beta cells. And we were so intrigued and we thought maybe there's something here. And it just turned out that our second day of shooting is when the researchers got the green light to go to clinical trial. And then we knew we had a good story to tell. Or we thought we did. We thought there was potential anyway. How fortuitous was that for you when you got the word from Viacite people that the FDA greenlit the clinical trial on people? Um, it, it was that had was to be every that had to be everything to you. It was everything, and we were there filming it um, in real time. And I, I, I appreciate you understanding how rare that is, because you know the FDA doesn't approve clinical trials constantly. No, and this was such a pioneering one. The fact that we were able to be there when they got the news from the FDA. Which huge. Not only did they get the green light, that was important, but they also, we were also able to be there to capture that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really moving and goosebumps. Uh, yeah. I mean, you didn't need to recreate anything there. Um, that was raw. It was pure. And I think what a lot of people don't understand, that they'll get a better understanding when they watch the documentary, The Human Trial, but the whole idea of, imp- of this implantation of these embryonic stem cells is they go in in a little packet, but this involves anti-rejection drugs, same as if you were getting an organ transplanted in you uh, because it's a foreign body being put inside you, foreign cells, and they don't want you to be rejecting them. Um, this is just such a huge, huge endeavor. Um, for the FDA to consider and to approve, and then for people such as Marin and Gregory to want to participate in. Um, right. I mean, this this is a huge part of science. And maybe thanks to COVID, people may be a little more aware about uh, the trials. Of course, the trials for COVID were happening real time while they're dispensing with the vaccines because there wasn't anything before. Uh, so yeah no I hear you I, I I wish Debbie that people had a better appreciation of clinical trials because of shots in arms within six months with the COVID vaccine but I honestly don't think people really no. appreciate it because there weren't cameras there capturing it no 
because there were only like a few news stories considering the import the importance of what these guys were you know the patients were doing for us they, they didn't get a ton of coverage um and that's also because you know covid brought the world to its knees right. so there was so much to cover that i just think people took it for granted that there were these heroes who did this for us well, and, you know, as we all learned with COVID now, you know, the mRNA um, procedure of disseminating the vaccine in the body, uh, that w- had been in process. There had been work being done on that, but that nobody heard about. But all of a sudden, everybody's talking about mRNA um, in vaccines. And this, this is what I hope people will also see in your documentary is the length of time it takes you know it's like okay everybody got their covid vaccine and with this mrna process um but how many years was that being developed beforehand here how many years was were these embryonic stem cell implants being developed before we even got to the clinical trial And as we learn... Great questions. I mean, you're asking the key questions. Mm -hmm. You know, the mRNA vaccine was 10 years in the making. And that couple from Moderna, they, they, um, I think in 2012, they were doing some major breakthroughs. And they were doing it because of SARS. But then this, then SARS kind of quietly went away. Yeah. And so this, this research was no longer critical. But of course, it was critical. And it took a public health emergency to trigger mm-hmm. Operation Warp Speed, to trigger all of the support around the world, you know, to, to have corporations talking to each other for the first time. And it took that public emergency to get that mRNA vaccine, or excuse me, the mRNA technology into a vaccine for COVID. Mm-hmm. And it happened within six months. So the science was working. They just needed that, you know, that motivation, that catalyst. And I think what's, and, I, and I'm glad you're asking really, good questions about this because we look at the the rollout of the COVID vaccine and we look at it obviously as a miracle kind of Mm -hmm. is there such a thing as a miracle in science because it took so many years to develop maybe not but at the same time I do believe that that paradigm can be recreated for other cures and vaccines absolutely and I look at type 1 diabetes and I look at the the research that we're following and it's really exciting. And in fact, what they're doing now is trying to get rid of the anti-rejection drug mm-hmm. by gene editing their cells to avoid detection from the body. Um, so the science is there. And I just wish people understood that diabetes is the other pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it, it needs attention. And diabetes, just like COVID, it doesn't care who you are. Uh, you know, it's not like there is, it's one of those diseases that, yes, there are markers that you may be predisposed to it, but for the most part, um, it just randomly, it randomly strikes, such as my grandfather at age 90, all of a sudden, he's diabetic. Uh, my mother and my brother in adulthood, all of a sudden, um, and my brother was one of the healthiest people around, uh, exercised all the time, competed in sports, ate well, um, and he still got hit. So it, it doesn't discriminate 
diabetes will will hit you when you least expect it, um, just like COVID, which is another reason why it needs to be now is the perfect time for it to be brought into the forefront of the of the medical and science discussions. You know how many people died in 2021 from diabetes? Millions. 6.7, 6.7 million people around the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I think it's hard, and naturally it's hard for people to absorb statistics. But if you, if you break that statistic down, it's the size of Utah and Connecticut combined. And um, that's astonishing that, you know, more attention isn't paid this disease. Mm-hmm. You know, a question for you, because of the fact the documentary covers we're following Marin and Gregory, our first two clinical trial patients out of University of Minnesota. Um, we're also with the Viacite scientists uh, and executives. You go to Riyadh and to Japan uh, to capture, uh, to give us a flavor of what happens when they're trying to find money to continue with the trials? So you have these different prongs that are happening. How did you go about working with your editors, Susan Metzger and Scott Stevenson, at assimilating all the footage you were accumulating and all the information you were accumulating over a span of six, seven, eight years? Yeah, that was intense. I mean, we shot 365 hours. Uh, only, and, you know, only, okay. Only 365. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm saying that like much, you know, tongue in cheek there. Um, that's a lot of footage to go through. And obviously, as you point out, there are lots of prongs and lots of story beats and lots of different directions that we could go in. And how we worked with the editors is we had like old school, giant whiteboards. I mean, <laughs> I have pictures i have stills behind the scenes where these humongous whiteboards are overtaking our quite large office because we had one for you know the patients marn and craig each had one then we had one for the site. then we had one for a third patient who unfortunately didn't get in the film because we had so much footage but um we had to just determine what we were going to do was it going to be like a you know a talking head survey piece Was it going to be this, you know, verite film where we followed this clinical trial that might work for the patients? And ultimately, we followed the dramatic story beats, which I'm certainly glad we did. And we used the clinical trial as our narrative arc. And um, because the patients were so charismatic and interesting, um, I think in many ways they carried carried the show for us. But certainly... um, interweaving the the different points of view did take time and we were editing for two years and part of that was because of the pandemic um and the remote nature of editing during it but part of it was just the just how immense the material was and and how big the themes were and how to drill down and get to the essence while not boring people well i want to i want to hear from the man who shot 365 hours of footage here uh (laughs) <laughs> guy, my God. Uh. I know. And that was, um, you know, we had other cinematographers who came in to help. I uh, couldn't be there every second. But we had some amazing, capable um, help that um, came out in the field and, and 
and were able to support. Um, but, um, you know, I, I was going to say, as a director of photography, you know, my wheelhouse is really um, typically is uh, being involved in creative calls uh, in pre-production and then really in the field and, uh, and I'm usually cut off at some point and then the rest of the film happens um, with the, with the, you know, with the directors and editors in this mm -hmm. case, because I'm, I'm, um, by virtue of being a co-director and throughout the process being involved, it, the editorial, I was constantly getting feedback, which is great. And um, so we were able to really kind of hone, um, I think, um, the, the sort of look of the film, but also really, really more the story um, because we were constantly getting that feedback. And, and so, um, so that kind of continuity, I think, really benefited the film. Um, and typically it's, you know, DP will stop and then there'll be some pickup shoots. But in this case, I mean, you know, and being in the edit room to see Lisa was, you know, Lisa was definitely, uh, we, we worked it out. So there were times where I could see the footage and, 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 and then we could, you know, um, we could, and we, and we got some new ideas on how to shoot different things as well. So we had to go back and we went back and reshot things. So. Um, some things were working and some things weren't. And then, but yeah, it all worked out. You know, I got to ask you, Guy, were you getting a heads up as to when something interesting might be happening that so that you could get there uh, to film it? Yes, we would get, we would certainly um, get an idea. Like, I think that Biosite was very good. Well, I mean, Lisa May actually. Um, I think that Viasa was very good. That Lisa was their contact person, their point person, but mm -hmm. they were good at tipping us off or just letting us know um, that um, something might be occurring and we may want to come down. Um, and that's very typical. Um, to have that kind of relationship with your subjects is really important. Mm -hmm. you know, how surprised mm -hmm. were you guys when you got to go to Riyadh and also to Japan um, to mm -hmm. sit in at... Uh, uh, you know, on these meetings for potential financing? You know, I think the best scene, one of the best scenes of fundraising was when um, Paul was with the Crown Prince, mm -hmm. a couple of them. And, Guy, why don't you describe how yeah. you got access to that? Right, that is, that's the story. Um, so... Um, the crew had gotten separated. I was in the car with um, Paul going there, so I was filming him in the car. And so was, uh, there was, a, I think, an, I was doing audio on that shoot as well. Um, it's that part of the shoot. Um, so I was self-contained. Um, with the, I had the camera lenses found. Uh, the other follow car that had the rest of the team, um, unfortunately, got separated. And Riyadh is a busy bustling city mm -hmm. and they got stuck in traffic or got I'm not sure if if they were um you know if they got lost but they showed up an hour later so here I am with um uh with Paul and we go in together and um Paul um they, Paul was introducing himself and then he introduced me and I said oh I was Paul I was Paul's uh videographer um and uh, and they were like, okay, sure. Well, Paul wants him to be here. Uh, then then um, so so it, so it worked out. I, I think that normally 
Um, normally, that would have been a very difficult scene to get access to, but um, but I think in that, that maybe the language barrier in that case, um, it, it just didn't occur to them that I might be a documentary crew. I didn't, you know, and so I was able to come up and film with them. But um, guy, yeah, it's even that, more than that. I mean, Paul Lake, Paul some, would put his foot down when it really was an important meeting for money, right? And he's like, you can't film this. Yeah. And I think that the MO was yeah. like, no, you're not going to be filming this guy. And then Guy just refused to unvelcro himself from Paul, yeah. and you yeah, know, I was saying, like, I, saying that yeah. he was his personal videographer, and you know that takes guts. But we did it, and Paul saw the film, and he, you know, likes it and champions it. So you know, you, you got to be aggressive sometimes without annoying your subject. Okay, now let's let's get to, cut to, cut to the chase here. Do you think, Guy, because you were there, that's why the Crown Prince didn't pony up any money? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. You always wonder with the presence of a camera. I don't know. I wonder if it was that or if it was the number. He said, isn't that the billion-dollar question or something uh, like Something that? like that, yeah. Um, and it was like, okay, that, I mean, that was, I don't know if he got sticker shock, but, um, but uh, uh, you always wonder, right? It is a question. It is um, on every documentarian's mind how how their presence there and the camera will will affect uh, and um, an unfolding situation, um, and um, I certainly hope it did not. But um, but yeah. But we hey, they it. eventually did get more funding. Via Viasite currently has they just got bought out by another research company this year. And apparently there are now, what, nine, ten individuals uh, undergoing clinical trials where this is proving, this uh, process is proving successful thus far. You know, the, the numbers are better than that. Wow. Um, yeah. No, it's really, really exciting. And Vertex is the big pharma company that just acquired Biocyte. Okay. And it's actually a good move. You know, some people would think, oh, now they have a monopoly on it and they're going to bury the patent. That's not going to happen because um, the head of the cell division at Vertex for this type one research is Doug Melton, whose own lab at Harvard was purchased like three years earlier. So he has two kids with type one. And there is no way on God's green earth that this is going to be stopped. This is just going to yeah. be picking up momentum now that there are all, there's all this money behind this particular approach. And um, we're, we're feeling really hopeful about it. Like there was, um, there was an article in the cover of the New York Times last November, almost to this day, that uh, profiled the first patient in the Vertex trial before they acquired Visite, but uh, where he was off insulin fully like or 90 percent within the first like nine weeks that's amazing and he's still off insulin i know i can get wonky really fast but it it is so it is so really exciting and we talked to other researchers who are cynical and jaded and and they're even saying we're cautiously optimistic that this really is it well and and you can understand that because you never want to jump the gun and then have everybody's hopes come crashing to the ground. Um, so, you know, science likes to say cautiously optimistic a lot. Um, <laughs> but even cautiously optimistic when something positive happens, the excitement 
and the energy is there that pushes it on forward. You know, I have a question for you, Lisa, and I was thinking about this earlier before we were even on that. I started thinking about this yesterday. But, you know, for decades, for over 40 years, we had Jerry Lewis doing the MDA telethon every year, putting muscular dystrophy and the 37 or 38 forms of it out there for the public, showing a compilation of research that was taking place during the course of the year, showing progress. I think one of the greatest things every year for everyone would be to see Bob Sampson, who was the head of United Airlines, um, who was still alive well into middle-age adulthood, uh, living with muscular dystrophy. But we had faces, and we had the research and the processes, and the scientists were out there talking. We don't have that anymore. No, not diabetes, not even, not even cancer. We don't have a collective one-stop showing everybody, because as you well know, people need visual aids. <laughs> They've got to have visual you know, aids. Absolutely. Let's just look at the visual aids that have worked very well for one particular disease, breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Susan B. Coleman, however controversial she is, has her organization has done a fantastic job. Yeah on putting breast cancer on the map. And in fact, Guy and I were walking through LAX the other day, and sure enough, everything was wrapped in pink, mm-hmm. all the security desks, even in duty-free. And, you know, I thought, where's the blue? Where's the diabetes blue? And where where is our disease representation, let alone just where are the scientists talking about what they're working on? Right. Um, which is to your point. But um, I, I think, what, what, what is the difference? I mean, remember March, uh, we don't remember March for Dimes, but that was a huge push. Oh, right? by FDR. For, for yes. It, it was so successful. The United Way uh, Foundation, I, I did a readathon for MS, I remember when I was a kid in grade school. Um, but where is that now? And I don't know if there's just more awareness of so many diseases that it's hard to kind of, you know, make a noise. I think that, um, like I said, breast cancer, has, you know, or the Susan B. Coleman Foundation has done a great job at penetrating apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I would hope that there's someone who can, you know, really push it forward for diabetes. World Diabetes Day is November 14th. Mm-hmm. World Diabetes Day. It's sanctioned by the WHO and the International Diabetes Federation. But how many people know about its existence? Yeah. Not a lot. Not even people with diabetes. That, that's just it. Unless you're active within a community anymore. Um, and that's one of the things that strikes me and why I brought up MDA. is, be, And even since, you know, Jerry Lewis stopped with the telethon, you know, before you know, a few years before his passing, you know, all of a sudden, you know, everything that we got used to seeing about how trials happen, how... Uh, the genetic work is being done. We don't see that anymore. And that used to be so enlightening to the public. And I think we need more of that. And that's one, that is one of the good things about this documentary, The Human Trial, is because you do let us see that. We see the lab. We see the research scientist. We see what's happening you know, Gregory and his, cr- and his clinical trial, that's 50 weeks. 
And we're seeing him yeah. day one, and we're seeing him 50 weeks later. So we're seeing these compilations, and that's not something that anyone is taking the time to show us anymore. And that's one of the great mm-hmm. benefits of your documentary about for diabetes. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I have to say it was very hard, though, following a clinical trial in real time, <laughs> not knowing what Act 3 was going to be. Yeah. Um, and, and whether or not, even at the beginning, like, well, how long is this trial going to last? Are they going to have enough success to get into efficacy mode where you'd have the aha moment yeah. where it's working? Um, it, it like took us a long time for that reason. And we had to keep raising money and convince people that we don't know what act three is, but trust me, it's going to be good. You care about the patient. Um, even if it's not a home run, it's really important to show it. And people want nice, easy answers, you know, with a little red bow. Mm-hmm. There aren't any. But that's, no, there, I mean, we could argue there aren't any in life, right? But there's certainly not any in, in the scientific method. Right. Um, it just takes time to get to that point. Well, this is one documentary I am so glad that the two of you have made. It's very eye-opening on multiple levels. Um, I do like how you interwove clinical, research, fundraising. Forget about fundraising to make the film. You know, fundraising for the trials. Um, you've got, you really touch on so much here to open people's eyes, uh, to enlighten them and make them aware. Um, and this couldn't come at a better time. It really could not. Well, I, I think you asked really smart questions. I don't know if you have a background in science, but uh, you, you asked wonderful questions, and uh, we really appreciate being on your show. I'm so happy Thank to you. have you, and everybody can see the human trial this Friday on the 11th. Uh, on That's what? Right. On Apple Plus, on Amazon, on Google Play. Uh, is there anywhere That's else? Right. Anywhere yeah. else is going? It's, it's, yeah, it's actually Apple TV, and you can pre-order it now. Okay. But we're also on Google Play and Prime Video. And we purposely chose November 11th for our release because Monday is World Diabetes Day. And Which is perfect. It's really important to us to, to launch the and film around it. That, and those that do not have Apple TV can just go to their Apple iTunes on their laptop or their computers, um, and uh, can pre-order there as well. So it's not just Apple mm-hmm. TV. Yeah, so, and everybody ha- everybody can access Google, Google Play, you know. Yeah. If, you, if you're downloading apps for games, you can certainly download this documentary yeah. as well. Oh. And, and we have links on humantrial.com forward slash watch. So we try to make it super easy for people. Well... You have made it very super easy for people. More, more people need to become aware of type 1 diabetes, even type 2 diabetes, um, and the strides that are being made because who knows what is being done with these trials and this research. As we have seen in the past, it can be applied to some, possibly be applied to something else uh, and maybe eradicate another disease in the process or aid in its treatment. Um, science is science and science gets connected um, and it's very important and uh, this is an important documentary for people to see 
guys. I well, can't thank you. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I hope you will come back on the show again. Maybe you'll do an update on this documentary. You might have to do a sequel. Uh, I, I hope so. I hope I hope there's like that Disney ending for the sequel. That would be great. That would be a great ending. But, oh, guys, thank you so, so much. This has been so wonderful getting to talk with you about the human trial uh, and all the work that you put into it. Just amazing. Thank you, and all the best to you and and your family and friends who have the disease as well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Lisa. And hopefully we will chat again in the near future. Yes. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Guy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that was director Lisa Hapner, Guy Mossman, director of photography, cinematographer of The Human Trial documentary. Perfectly timed for National Diabetes Month. Next Monday is World Diabetes Day. Uh, See it. It'll open your eyes on many things and maybe even prompt you to go and do some Googling on, on your own. All right, that is all the time we have today. Yes, we ran over. Ran over talking about a very important subject, though. Uh, Next week, it is a full house. We got people calling in all day next next Monday. Pam's rolling her eyes now. Uh, So, and people, don't forget the highlight of my year. Sunday, November 13th, 8 p.m., Paramount Network, Season 5, two-hour premiere, Yellowstone. Uh, You can be sure I'm going to find some time next Monday to talk a little bit about Yellowstone Season 5 premiere. So, until next Monday, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 